Welcome to More Than Your Number, a podcast on the Enneagram and personal growth. I'm Teresa McBean, Enneagram practitioner, pastor, wife of over four decades to the same patient and long-suffering husband, mom to three, and Mimi to two practically perfect grandchildren. I am so glad you have joined me for this podcast focused on using the Enneagram as it was intended, as a map for personal growth. Well, hello, friends. I'm so excited to be here with you for um, more than your number, the Enneagram and personal growth. I'm Teresa McBean. Uh, I started this podcast because I'm really interested in people's Enneagram stories, their journey, how they identified their type, but more importantly, how they use the Enneagram as a map for human development and for their own personal development. And I'm so excited to have... um, Leslie with me today because she is someone who I have observed really being quite intentional about her own Enneagram journey. So welcome, Leslie McDaniel. So glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's nice to be here. Great. I know you're a coach and a consultant, but the thing I love about your description of you, your bet the best, is empathic advocate. Can you tell me why you chose that to describe yourself? Yeah, um, I think I feel very empathetic in that I can see where people are coming from Mm -hmm. and I can put myself in their position in a healthy way after I've done work. I was actually Mm -hmm. just talking to someone about this this morning. My my view of empathy has changed over the years as I've done work as a four, but um, I feel like I can really understand where people are coming from. And if it's not an immediate thing, I'm driven to figure it out for them to like figure out where they're coming from so I'm really intensely interested in them and their story and so I think that helps me to hold a lot of space for where they are in their life Mm -hmm. whether it's emotionally or just trying to solve a problem or things like that so that's why I say I'm an empathetic advocate because yeah I'm just like I am their number one fan or their number one advocate I guess you'd say when I'm working with them that's the way I see my role as their coach okay that's fantastic I am also very curious because you are four you're the counter type four right self-preservation dominant yes and we'll talk about that a little the details of that a little bit more later I hope but I don't want to get off this empathy thing yet because you were saying that your viewpoint of empathy has changed over the years. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So when I when I first thought about being, you know, empathetic or like what that even means, I really thought it was just, it meant taking on other people's feelings. <laughs> you know, I thought it meant feeling what other people feel. Um And as I've thought about it and done work and recognize that there really needs to be a distinction between me, you know, and where I end and begin and where the other person ends and begins, it's not really healthy for me to interject those feelings as a four would do. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown's latest work, The Alice of the Heart. And I was watching one of her um, episodes on her HBO special recently, and she was talking about this idea of uh, um, I think she called it cognitive empathy. So it's mm-hmm. like 
having an understand, a cognitive understanding of where the person's coming from, but not getting enmeshed in it. Mm-hmm. And I think as I've done work and understood that, first of all, it's not healthy for me to take on other people's feelings. And I'm doing that as a, a way of suffering too, uh, to take in mm-hmm. and for, as a self-pres type, self-preservation type, I hold it in and I, I'm long suffering. So I just let it sit in there. It's not healthy for me. So I have observed myself being able to sit with people and their emotions and you know, I'm not 100% on this, but not cry when they're crying or not get angry when they're angry or not really let that emotion impact me emotionally, mm-hmm. um, but to have a little bit more of a cognitive perspective, cognitive perspective of like, where are they coming from and where is this emotion coming from and how can I be with them in that understanding rather than having to feel it myself, if that makes sense. It does. I'm wondering if this resonates with you. It seems like in describing that, to me, and I'm a head type, so I'm, I'm a social sick. It seems to me what you're describing is what I automatically do, which is kind mm-hmm. of do that cognitive piece in my head. And I've had to do work to simultaneously experience heart and head. And mm-hmm. it feels like that's what you're saying in the, in the reverse, that you automatically, with this heart, can fall into someone else's feelings but you've had a little shift in awareness and now you're able to bring your head your cognition on board too absolutely i think you're right and speaking of the head center as i've learned about the enneagram and the different uh centers of intelligence i think i do and have relied really heavily on my head cent- on that head center to try to balance out some of the emotional um irregularities, I guess you'd say, that uh, difficulty in regulating my emotions. It has been a really big help in evening that out and bringing a, a more well-rounded perspective mm-hmm. to, yeah, the way that I can be with people. Yeah, I think sometimes we don't really um, think as much about the three centers of intelligence, the body, the head, and the heart, as much as it would benefit us to. Um, yeah. And I'm very heady. And it's just super important for me to slow down and access my heart. Um, mm. Not sure where my body fits in and all that as I'm sitting here <laughs> thinking about it. But definitely I've just really felt like to balance the head out, the heart was a good space for me. And it sounds like you also are feeling that in reverse. Yeah. And I, I'm the same as the body center. It's like the one that I access the least, mm-hmm. but I love the way that it's often described as centers of intelligence. And I think I want to have well-rounded understanding and intelligence of people. That's really where I'm drawn to, but I want to call upon all those centers, all those ways of, of seeing and knowing. So, you know, when we think about the Enneagram itself, it, when we're in our tight patterns, we have a very limited view of reality or of, of what's happening in our, ourselves too. And this is just one way calling upon all those centers to broaden that perspective, to have a more expansive view. Mm-hmm. So I think having done a little bit of Enneagram work, I don't want to deny, you know, any way that I can broaden my perspective and have a more expansive view of myself and other people and kind of what's going on in the world. You know, as you were sitting there talking, I was thinking about the three centers of intelligence. One thing that I realized that I have done 
in more recent times is I always go do something physical between appointments. Mm. So um, I've got an elliptical. I've got uh, an exercise bike here. Um, I walk multiple times a day and I think, you know, I maybe didn't think about that, but it's almost like it's how I recenter myself to move from one activity to the next. So I guess that, that is what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. And as you're saying that I do, I do call upon my body to shift me out of things. Um, I think for me, like it's more of an energetic or emotional thing that I feel like if I'm really in it or I've taken on something, I will shake my body to literally kind of like get it off or to change positions and you know, get a different perspective that way. So yeah, I do. I, I'm still struggling a bit with like the instinctive nature of that body center intelligence um, and the the power that that brings. I, I think I've got some work to do there still though. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I having I've been committed to the practice of this kind of movement because I think it's where I have my best intuitive ideas. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure I'd be so committed to it just to be committed to it, but I have learned from experience that it's in the movement that I do my best thinking and feeling. So I've yeah. had to kind of convince myself of that. Well, not really convince myself. I had to pay attention to realize that that was true. Having yeah. seen that, now I'm extremely committed to it, I guess. Yeah, I like that you brought up the intuition because I personally have thought of the centers of intelligence as centers of intuition. I know that's not probably mm-hmm. like uh, exactly how they're described, but because intuition is an important part, part of my life, I think there is emotional intuit, uh, intuition. There's, you know, head or cognitive intuition and there's body intuition. So, um, that's really interesting that you said that. And it's, yeah, it's more motivation for me too, I think. <laughs> you know, one of the things that people always say is that, um, sixes, uh, they don't, they don't often hear sixes say, well, my gut said, but mm-hmm. I say it all the time. Um, And so I was like, well, what does that mean about me? But I do really love what you said about centers of intuition, because I think that's really true, that it is it is a knowing that comes to you in a way that can't be explained because you just read it in a book. Yeah. And um, and it feels more true to me when I can experience it. So I think what I'm just having this sort of glimmer of light about is it feels the best when I can experience it in all three centers mm. and it just feels yeah. wholly true. Yeah. I can have thoughts and I can have feelings and I can even be really aware of being in my body, but it's when those three things come together where it feels like I'm really having a moment of some sort. Yeah. And I think that's about being a whole person too, because Mm -hmm. the Enneagram allows us to be more fully and wholly expressed, I think. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's like we were talking about earlier. They all, they're, they're all needed. All of those pieces are needed for us to have the most expansive view of ourselves and of life. Right. Well, let's go back a little bit. I wonder if you could tell me, because one of the things I'm really interested in is having people hear real stories of people's experience with really figuring out what their type was. What was that like for you? 
Um, it was, it's, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, when I first came across the Enneagram, it's like many people, I took a test and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Um, I wasn't convinced of, I, of the type and I never really came to a type until I was like profiled or typed by somebody. Um, and one, two, and four would frequently come up on the test for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would read it. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's, it's a way to describe myself, which mm-hmm. is what a lot of personality tests do. People stop there. Right. And so I didn't really know that you could do anything else with it other than read a description and say yes or no. <laughs> yes, that's me or no, it's not. So I didn't really uh, progress beyond that. Um, fast forward to a time period when I was about to start my business. I was doing some like soul searching for lack of a better term, really trying to figure out some things about myself and why I had experienced some things I had in my previous job and why I was being driven towards starting my own business. Um, I was taking all sorts of tests, uh, personality tests and strength tests and all these different things. And the Enneagram came back up for me. Um, at that time, then the four, uh, the four came up as one of the top ones again. And I really, I can see now that a lot of my type four patterns prevented me from wanting to settle into that. So there was comparison. I'm a counter type. So I don't feel as emotional and expressive as a type four does or artistic and creative, all these stereotypes that people have of what fours, how they show up in the world. Um, And knowing, even when I found out about uh, the counter types, um, there was still that like hesitation of not allowing myself to be a four because I wasn't like good enough or something enough. I wasn't creative enough or um, emotional enough and all these things. Um, I finally was uh, typed or profiled um, by Beatrice Chestnut and uh, she was like, yes, you know, I really think self-press four fits you best. And I think your work now is to just settle into that. Cause I had told her how I'd been questioning and all this stuff. Unfortunately, that didn't stop my questioning and my like, am I really a four? Because I had just all those stereotypes, you know, the t- descriptions of what a four looks like. And I thought, gosh, I'm just, I just don't seem like that. I don't think that I'm that way. Um, so I began working with Enneagram coaches. I have had a couple different ones and seeing it reflected back to me and just clarifying how I wasn't a one and I wasn't a two and I wasn't a three and I wasn't any of these other types. Um, And then actually seeing my type patterns at play uh, through self-reflection and later self-observation. Like, yeah, I can't deny it's true. (laughs) It's very true. So I think that that settled feeling um, when I allow myself to feel it, (laughs) I mentioned that because there's still times where I'm like, gosh, but I know it's true because I've seen uh, the patterns at play in ways that I can't deny it. So, yeah. So you and I, because we've been at CP Enneagram, uh, among other places, but places we've been and they believe in thinking of the instincts differently than other people. Could you explain to somebody who might not understand what we're talking about when you call yourself a self-preservation for and a countertype, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So um, as your listeners might know, there are three um, instincts for survival that we talk about with the Enneagram that they exist in the animal kingdom. 
um, self-preservation, sexual one-to-one or social. And we all have these things, but I love the perspective that CP Enneagram takes in that um, one of these is typically way overdone for us. Mm -hmm. And one is typically way underutilized. And that instinct that's overdone, the way it combines with the core motivation or passion or vice, some people call it, of your type creates a really interesting combination. And it's so much more descriptive than any other way of describing differences of people in the same type for me. Um, Particularly, I think, from what I've understood and learned and seen, the fours and the sixes are two of the types that are so different between the three subtypes. So it has meant a lot to be able to, okay, yes, I'm a four. I fit here. (laughs) You know, I'm understood in this way, but I just happen to have a little bit different flavor because of the way my self-preservation instinct um, combines with that passion of envy. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that when we're learning is we, we read books and we take classes and we're given these descriptions of fours, which I want to talk about the stereotypes because I think fours, also I think fours and sixes are stereotyped in ways that both you and I find almost offensive, (laughs) Um, (laughs) maybe even offensive. Um, But that what happens is we're reading intellectually these descriptions of a type And we're reading the behavior traits of the instinct. And in my own work, I found it extremely complicated for people to settle in, particularly on their dominant instinct, because it's an instinct. But the Mm -hmm. thing that fascinates me the most in thinking about countertypes, so I want to ask you about this, is it, it seems to me that a countertype, sort of by definition, is when the typical behavior traits that are attributed to the personality of a type meet with the dominant behavioral traits of the that particular dominant instinct. The countertype is sort of born in the subtype when those they don't mesh well. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you, because of your self-preservation and your four, have you experienced a lot of internal paradox? I think so. Yes. Um, And I've had to grow in consciousness and awareness to understand that, to see that that's what's happening. But, you know, with the passion of envy, envy uh, makes me feel and other fours like there's something missing, inherently missing in ourselves and our lives that other people seem to have. Mm -hmm. And so it creates this uh, suffering and sadness Mm -hmm. for all fours. But the different subtypes of fours react to that in a different way. And so for me, as a self-preservation instinct uh, dominant, I pretty quickly push against that and go into action to try to remedy that feeling Mm -hmm. because I, I don't want to feel the envy. And sometimes it has been very even unconscious that that's what it was, that that was driving my action. Um, So yeah, it's a, instead of like some of the other fours might, uh, like a social four might kind of really sit and feel that pain um, and a sexual four might get really angry about it. Um, I'm going to tend to go against it and maybe even deny that I'm feeling that Mm -hmm. and the way that 
the sense of something missing is making me feel inside. Um, so it's been also part of my work to like not repress those feelings and to identify what I'm feeling to see what's actually driving me toward all the activity that I do. So I don't know if that answers your, totally. your question. But. And it, and it, I, I don't know without the knowledge of the instincts how a self-preservation four would ever identify themselves as a four. I don't even know how you yeah. could get there because if you take the stereotypical descriptions of a four, you don't fit them. I don't. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think, yeah, without this version of the Enneagram, uh, I don't know. Maybe I would be a type one, I guess. Um, you know, what about a three? Or a three. Yeah, yeah, you know, people have asked me that. And only in maybe the last year, I even, you know, investigated self-pres three a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, I... I don't have a sense of competition. I think that threes mm-hmm. do. I mm-hmm. also, I do observe myself kind of, threes will shape shift. All heart types will shape shift to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but fours tend to be one, more aware of when they do it and two, not feel good about it. Right. Um, Goes against so that me, authenticity. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so from my understanding, as I've thought about it, I'm like, I, I'm just not driven in that same way. Um, like, I will show a different aspect of myself to different people, but it's very conscious. And it's, it's not, it's not like, um, it's something I choose. It's a piece of my identity that I'm choosing to bring up in a certain situation. So it's a very sort of self-led rather than adopting a persona of whatever I think other people want me to be. No, it's definitely internally motivated. So I think that's a really big difference in the way Mm -hmm. that threes and, um, or at least me and a three would uh, experience that. Yeah, boy, that is so um, on point. And I think such a good differentiator for people who are curious or wondering um, about the differences And I think about when I heard you say earlier that unlike the sad four or the mad four, what you would do is go against that instinct of envy and sort of fight against the sadness or feeling something's missing and you would go Mm -hmm. acquire it, right? You're going to look for that. When I heard that, I was like, well, that acquisition definitely feels like what self-preserving types do. Mm Mm-hmm. And I could see how with your three wing, you might be really good at that, right? Because mm-hmm. you've got that capacity to sort of lean into three and find it. But the, it was so clear what you said. You're not doing that because you want to be perceived as successful. You're doing it not in pursuit of success, but out of an internal sense of identifying something that you feel that's missing and you want to avoid the pain of that sadness that comes with that perception. Yeah. I mean, that is completely different. That is so different. It's just like night and day different, right? Because of the motivation. Yeah. Yeah, And I, when I think about, you know, what a three might want, and I'm not a three, so I don't want to speak for threes, but my understanding, you know, is they, they'll have a, you know, a persona of what they think the other person sees as successful or whatever the role mm-hmm. is or whatever the thing is that they're 
uh, trying to portray. But for me, the only thing I ever want to be perceived as usually is the the four things like unique and insightful and, you know, special in some way. Like those are the things that I want people to see about me. It does not change <laughs> from right. situation to situation. And it's sense, it is that sense of authenticity. Like I want people to see that I have depth to me. You know, um, I want them to see that I am, you know, really thoughtful in that way or that I have a capacity to sit with their emotions and all of those four-ish kind of things. So um, I think all Enneagram types probably want people to see certain things about them. Um, But for me, that's what it is. and It does not change. I have a four friend who... um they they identify with four but they're not particularly interested in the enneagram because what she says is the enneagram feels to her like it's stuffing her in a box mm-hmm. and i mean that makes sense right um how could you read about as a four who is really aware of the parts of you that are unique how could anyone capture you in a chapter on fours mm-hmm. what do you think about that do you feel like it puts you in a box? I don't. And I know that is a common, I don't want to dismiss your friend's experience because that is definitely a common uh, thing, I think, for a lot of fours. For me, I am just so, so interested in identity and understanding myself. And I'm not saying your forefriend is not, but, you know, there can be other life circumstances or other things that are impacting that. But I'm so driven to understand myself that, I will look at a description of four and I'm trying to find myself in it um, and find the points of resonance. I've never, from my memory and understanding, being like, oh, yeah, you can't capture me in those words. Um, I think I think it could, you know, early on, I think I read the, the phrase in one of the books, you know, it's the Enneagram doesn't put you in a box. It tells you the box you're already in, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember who said it. I think Beatrice uh, Chestnut said that. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, that to me when I read that, I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, I'm so, so interested in wanting to be self-aware and there's different levels of that, right? But wanting to walk through the world, even before I knew the language, but in a conscious way, in a real authentic way um, that when I learned that, I thought, oh, I want to know what what is this thing that's inhibiting me? You know, what is this thing that's holding me back? I think that was the perspective that I had. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that I've ever been concerned about it putting me in a box. Um, I think I'm still who I am. And I think that it's just a tool and a system to help me understand. It's not the end all be all of of everything. It's a really powerful tool, though. Yeah. Would you say that perceiving that you might be in a box of any kind as a four for you personally would be extremely inspiring to climb out of that box. (laughs) I mean, that would feel not great, right? Yes. Very, very good point. And that could be why when I read that early on, maybe that was, uh, you know, my early research, one of the motivations. Yeah, I do not like to be controlled. I don't want anyone to tell me who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've done some work on this, these triggers, but you know what a huge trigger is for someone to tell me how I'm feeling or who I am or what, what my identity is, if it doesn't resonate within, or if I haven't asked 
for that information. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, I could see that that is a huge motivation of wanting to throw that off. And, uh, you know, I don't want anyone or anything to define my box. I want it to be, uh, you know, built on my own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. You know, um, thinking about how hard it is to, whether you're coaching or you're teaching a class or, or writing a book, uh, you know, the only people that are experts on us are us. I mean, especially around a tool that is all driven by motivation, not just behavior traits. And so I have such empathy for anyone who tries to make sense of a typology that's not their own. Heck, I even feel empathic about trying to make sense of my own type for me because of my blind spots. Are there any particular stereotypes about four that really drive you crazy? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how to say this without, like, I don't want to, like, dismiss any of the other four experiences, you know, Um, because, you know, sometimes there are some truth in some of the stereotypes for Mm -hmm. some people of the type. So um, I think that, you know, there's a stereotype of fours being really dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that can be true for some people. And I even think maybe in my own life, there are ways in which I have my own version of that. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm not dramatic. And I take offense to that <laughs> because it seems out of control. And it seems like, um, yeah, it seems like I don't know what other word to use. It just feels so out of control and unaware. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, speaking of instincts, I do have my social instinct second. So Mm -hmm. I'm aware of impact on other people and it's, it's on my radar for sure. So I think drama and centering on ourselves when that happens really impacts other people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm sure there are aspects and ways that I've been that, but that one really bothers me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think another one is that this is something recent that, uh, I've heard, I think me and Uranio talk about this, but how fours are logical. Um, I, that's not a stereotype. The stereotype is that we're not logical, right? That we're just only emotional and that's it. Um, and I think fours can be logical in a, a like, you know, a really important, healthy way or a good way. Um, so let's see. I think another stereotype is that all fours are artists, you know, that we're all writing songs and writing poems and, you know, those kinds of things, which is and can be true for sure. But I think creativity and art, uh, artistic ability can play out in many, many different ways. Mm -hmm. And that's probably triggering for a lot of fours too, because there's that comparison aspect of, of am I artistic or as creative as this other person? And you know, is it good enough or is it uh, expressive or deep enough? Those kinds of things. Um, so I'm sure there's others, but those are the ones just coming to mind. I have a friend that's a four who um, works in corporate America. Mm. And when they were initially exposed to the four, they had kind of a crisis of identity because they were like, well, have I completely missed the mark? Like, you know, I'm in corporate America. I wear a suit to work. I don't, I'm not even in modern evolved 
working from home corporate America, I'm in a pretty um, established, buttoned up corporate America. And I wonder if I'm just living the wrong life, you know, noticing Mm -hmm. what's missing, right? Thinking, being afraid that maybe there's something that they've missed that's wrong. So I can hear sort of the the conditioned way a four would see. Mm -hmm. But we carried on extensive conversation about it only for me to discover and listening to them how creatively they have carried Mm -hmm. out their corporate experience. And they are a really profound and key leader in their organization. And I suggested to my friend to go get some feedback from somebody really trusted about what do you, what do you value most about me in this environment? And the number the number one statement was your creativity and super logic in problem solving. Mm. So it's like not only can fours be logical, but they can see what's missing and fill in the blanks. And so often even their corporate solutions are things that are innovative that no one else would think of. So yeah. they are considered an innovator in their industry and they didn't realize it. Yeah. You bring up another really important point about fours in that our gifts are in our shadow and we, it's really difficult. And I'll speak just for myself. It, it has been really difficult to acknowledge and honor and even speak about the things that I'm actually really good about. So I think that relates to the idea of something feeling being missing. You know, it's hard for a four to say, oh yeah, I actually am quite creative in this way, or I'm a problem solver in this way, or these are the gifts I actually bring. Um, for me, often it has to be reflected back to me many, many, many times. And it, I don't take it at, you know, at surface level or at face level, at face value. Um, it has to be something that comes from within. And only in the last, you know, couple of years have I really done a lot of work on this, of being able to speak about my gifts and say them, some of them, <laughs> without hesitation and not feeling like, oh, you know, is someone going to like say that's not true because I have this inner sense that maybe it's not true or it's not enough. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. You are listening to the podcast More Than Your Number about the Enneagram and personal growth with Teresa McBean. Are you curious about the Enneagram? Are you confused about your number? Join Teresa for nine weeks of mini sessions that will fan your curiosity and eliminate obvious Enneagram issues that often lead to confusion and mistyping. At the conclusion of this nine-week series, expect to have a grasp of all 27 subtypes, which is the first step in gaining specific suggestions via type for personal growth. To learn more, visit TeresaMcBean.com and click on Group Classes. Hope to see you there. I love that idea that for you guys um, in the four type, that your gifts and your strengths and your good enoughs really are in your shadow, yeah. um, which provides a, an amazing contrast to perhaps type seven, for example, <laughs> you know, so that you can sort of see a, a little contrast there because 
uh, the sevens are, are, are more interested in focusing on the positive than perhaps mm-hmm. doing uh, a deep dive into anything that feels like it could be dark or negative. Yeah. So, yeah, I think for a lot of people to hear that about the fours would be really surprising. Yeah. And I think part for me, part of my type patterns play out in those things that I do think are missing or not good enough, that, that well, that's what drives me. I go after those things as a self-pressed four to try to fill that space. And the problem is it's never enough because there's always something else that I feel like I have to go. It's not like it comes in and fills that hole in my heart or my body. And then all of it, oh, I'm good now. Nope. <laughs> you know, the, the personality pattern wants to keep me in that cycle of continuing to have to believe that something is missing when in fact it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a huge piece of awareness for a four to recognize that, first of all, that thought process or that feeling. And then secondly, that to look back and see how often that their actions have been driven or for a self-press for to, to fill that spot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of a conversation I had recently with this lovely, accomplished, amazing self-preservation for who um, uh, she and I are at, at an age where we're beginning to think, you know, like retirement might come to us someday, both of us <laughs> in our sixties. And um, I asked her the question that she's gone off to ponder. I can't wait to see what, how, she, how she interacts with it. Is this idea is, what would it be like for there to come a day when you knew that you were inherently good enough mm-hmm. and that there was no... What would happen? I mean, I, I, I'm i thinking, could this even happen? What would happen if there came a day where you woke up one morning as an SP4 and you said, nothing crucial is missing. And not only that, but I have worked so diligently to know myself that I have this giant carpet bag laden, beautiful, textured, um, I can even picture it with leather handles and all these beautiful Southwestern (laughs) colors. And that at any moment, if you are called to know something, to feel something, to do something, you have everything you need in there and you take the zipper and you unzip it, you smell the leather and you peer in and you dig around for a while, but it's there and you can pull it up and use it. I mean, what would that be like to be a self-preservation for <laughs> and know that? Well, I don't know if you can see, but your description brought tears to my eyes because mm-hmm. it does hit that place of of longing. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I long for that. Like I'm just getting emotional even saying that. Right. Um, and that's... There's a point in, you know, doing self-development work where at times I I do have to just pause and be like, okay, look at all that I've done. Look at all the growth that I've already had. And I work towards what you're describing, if not every day, like 
almost every day through gratitude, you know, acknowledging what I'm grateful for through trying to find moments of contentment Mm -hmm. and joy Mm -hmm. and allowing myself to feel those things. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, for a four, we may feel a lot of emotions, but joy is often one that can be put aside as like, no, I don't deserve to feel that. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, what about the sadness on the other side of it or something like that? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also just a sense of groundedness going way back to our our conversation about the body stuff. It was getting really grounded in the present uh, moment and taking taking time to sit with those things and be grateful and be grounded and be present and to recognize the beauty that is around me right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to create anything or I don't have to do anything else. I don't even have to do any more self-development work um, to have some of that beauty or to recognize some of the beauty that's already within me. So I think to what it would be like to answer your question would be really, it is amazingly powerful when I can experience that. Um, It is an ability to just see from such a high perspective of like seeing everything at once and not having that really narrowed perspective that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And it's a sense of, you know, equanimity. Everything is good. Everything is beautiful just as it is. Nothing is missing. Um, And that goes for me and other people. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, as I'm saying, and I just, I have a sense of a beautiful picture in my mind. It's not a a suitcase, but it's just a sense of beauty and light Mm -hmm. and, you know, loveliness, I guess, for lack of a, it's not a very descriptive term, but I know what it means to me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Of what that's, yeah, what that's like. Do you happen to have watched the show, This Is Us? I have, yes. I'm current on the show too, except I haven't watched the most recent one. (laughs) I don't want to ruin it for you. But what I would say is last night's episode, when I, so, so text me or email me when you watch it and tell me what you think. (laughs) I, cause I just cannot wait to hear. But as I was watching the show last night, I thought this is one of the most beautiful artistic expressions of equanimity that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it's this been this very emotional, creative, deeply feeling show with a thread of sadness that has run through every episode. Mm-hmm. And I thought, as I was looking at it, I was like, if a show had an any this is this is Enneagram <laughs> malpractice, okay? But if <laughs> This is seriously naughty, but if the in if an if a show could have an enneagram type, this is us was a four. <laughs> what if that were true? And so I can't wait for you to see the episode and how they crafted it. And yeah, I, yeah, 
I don't want to ruin it for you. I could say so much more, but I don't. I I don't want to ruin the experience. <laughs> yeah, I think I know what's ha- what's coming, and you know from that show. Yeah, like the first few episodes, like the first season especially. Like I was crying every single episode, you know. But I think what's beautiful so far about that is the the difficulty in the characters and then also the restoration that's like always right there and that they're working towards, but yet they're keeping themselves from. It's like that push pull in that, in all of the relationships really on that show. And, you know, I think restoration is, uh, it's talking about that longing, you know, that's where that comes. I long to be like restored to my original what I'm meant to be, or what I was meant to be, what I was created to be originally. And yeah, so that theme of restoration is a really important one for me. Uh, and I love to, I love to see that. Uh, I think probably because it's motivated from within, I want it for myself. Yeah, yeah. There are even, I have to say this one little thing, I don't think it'll ruin <laughs> it. Um Apologies, and I'll send you a big box of chocolate if it does. But I, (laughs) I think that even they introduced in this show itty bitty elements of people we've never even met before Mm -hmm. that had a part that when you think back, you remember where the part was. All to element, all I think to bring to fruition this idea that all is well, and even on your worst day, there's something there that's meant to be. Mm. Yeah. And I think that capacity type four has to appreciate that is one of the biggest gifts to humanity that anyone in any type could bring. And so um, let me know what you think. I will. Absolutely. Yeah. I just was going to say something really quickly about what you just said that reminds me of what I describe often as being a four. Like I see there's love and pain and they're like two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And I think like love or light or beauty only in my mind exists because of understanding that the depth of the pain that exists too. But as a four, I don't need that pain side to overwhelm and take up my entire view, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's beauty in both. Um, and yeah, I don't know why I just felt compelled to share that because yeah, I think right. that is something that fours bring. Um when they're in their healthier states of mm-hmm. not living in that pain side and the sadness, it's like mm-hmm. under so going back to that cognitive empathy, I think understanding mm-hmm. the depths of the pain and the sadness, but also knowing that that really fuels the love and the beauty on the other side. It makes that even more like, like a kaleidoscope or multifaceted because of the understanding of the other side, the depth of the pain and the sadness. Yeah. Yeah. That's just beautiful beautiful um you mentioned something in it you know a minute ago about this concept of push-pull can you explain that to people who've never heard about push-pull before and your experience with push-pull as a self-preserving four 
Yeah, I don't remember exactly what I was talking about um, before, but I do experience a lot of push-pull, I think, in my life um, in different areas. Uh, one with the envy, maybe that's what I was talking about, of the push-pull against, um, uh, against envy. Pulling in that sense of what's missing or interjecting the feelings, but then also pushing it away and going to action. I think also in relationships, unfortunately, there has been a push-pull there too of, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is these are not things I'm proud of and I'd love to share necessarily, but they're true. Um, but wanting to be seen and understood, but also holding myself at a length at which I, I cannot be understood and seen. Um, so it's like, please, please see me, please understand me. But then I have a perception that, oh, I cannot be understood. There's no way they could understand me. So it's, uh, it, it's a, it's an unfair push pull, I think in that too. Um, does it feel a little those... self-sabotaging to you in that moment? Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, not in the moment because I haven't, because I haven't been aware of that throughout mm-hmm. my life until mm-hmm. I've started doing Enneagram work. So I was just, you know, I had the perception of like, well, nobody can understand me. You know, I'm so unique and special. I wouldn't say those words, but you know, I'm on the outside. I would always put myself on the outside, whether or not I actually was on the outside or not. I had a perception that I was. So, you know, that, that makes it really difficult to actually even have connection with someone, which is the thing I really, really want um, I think also as a, a self-preservation for, I have a sense of, um, you know, guardedness and I have, and my, my sexual instinct is last. <laughs> so I, I'm really self-sufficient in that way. I, um, I withhold a lot of things. I don't share a lot about myself sometimes. That's been part of my work, having to share feelings. So I think that's probably another aspect of push-pull of wanting other people to give that to me, but then at times me not giving it back um, because of a pr- protection. Uh, and I don't know if those are great examples of push-pull, but that's kind of what's coming to, ma- to mind as you're asking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's great. You know, for for my side of things, thinking about being in relationship with fours, I feel that push-pull. Um, and I have wondered, is part of that because, so I'm, this is a curious question. I don't know the answer to it. Um, is part of that because fours really so desperately want to be seen that it's almost so scary? Cause if you, if you hold a little back, then you can say, well, I I would have been seen if I had fully shown up, but if you don't fully show up, you can never really know if someone's seen you or not. And I would wonder if it was just completely terrifying to think about fully showing up and then still feeling like someone didn't get you. Yeah, gosh, that's really, really insightful. I think that's, there's definitely something there. Um, It's about, not being rejected. If I withhold and I, I keep a little bit something back, then the potential for rejection in my mind, that's messed up, right? Like, is that maybe there's a little less potential of being rejected. And if I did share that and I am actually rejected, then that's like cutting to the core of my being. 
So I think it is around, you know, force have a really a big issue with rejection. A lot of our behavior is around not being rejected. Um, so yeah, that's really insightful. I don't know if I, I'd ever put them, put it in that, in those words before, but yeah, limiting the, um, the possibility of being rejected, limiting the possibility of being completely seen and not, uh, I don't know if it's honored or accepted or appreciated seen in the ways that we want or hope to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also giving away control of that to the other person, which mm-hmm. is really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, when we have a self-perception of who we are and how we're showing up or who we want to be our identity. And if it's not reflected back to us or not like held as a really important, uh, beautiful thing, you know, that I've given you access to, that's really painful, uh, really, really painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't think of anything that would be more painful for someone who cares and values so much authenticity mm-hmm. to not have that respected and honored as, yeah. as a value. Absolutely. Yeah. So withholding it reduces the risk of all that, as you said. Right. You know, you've used the word control a lot. And um, I think (laughs) that one of those uh, stereotypes about fours is the opposite of that, which you alluded to earlier, which is, oh, those fours, they're just so dramatic, you know, and they wear scarves. I mean, these terrible characters. (laughs) Um, And um, I... I think about how absolutely they can't be true because fours have this rich internal life that they curate. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't even, after I'm listening to you, I'm not even sure how anybody ever got to the part where they thought fours were dramatic. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, because it's more like, more for me, it's more like being mysterious in some ways mm-hmm. than being oh so dramatic. That just feels like it cheapens the experience of being in a relationship with a four. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting about the control thing. And I... I don't think that I think that that's probably unconscious for a lot of fours and mm-hmm. even for me at times um, or has been for sure. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the interjection, that's about control. Mm-hmm. It's about controlling the feeling. Mm-hmm. And um, I think control around identity. Yeah, there is a lot of control that I think is probably unconscious. And so it's interesting you reflected that back to me. It's not something I'd really thought uh, concretely about, I don't think. Hmm. Yeah. Could you explain what interjection means to you? Yeah. It's a, it's a difficult concept, to be honest. It has been really difficult for me to understand. You know, on the surface, it's the opposite of projection. You know, projection is, is putting something on someone, introjection is taking on inside. But what I've seen, the way it has played out for me or part of the way is 
like taking on those emotions of others um, or even taking on negative things so that I can sense that it's coming from within me. It's coming from with me, within me, which is about control. Um, so if I, I take on those emotions and I take on uh, maybe even negative like criticism or something like that, I can, if I take it in and act as if it's coming from within me, then it feels a lot better. <laughs> uh, it feels as if I have some sense of control. I have an a, ability to manage that in a way um, that I wouldn't if it was just out here, um, you know, in front of me. So yeah, taking on other people's emotions also for the sake of suffering, which sounds ridiculous, but that's what happens. Um, you know, force suffer. We all, all three of us suffer in different ways, but I take it on, take on the suffering of other people and hold it inside because sickly, I think I'm strong and I think I can handle it. Mm -hmm. So, and I say sickly, you know, like it's not, it's, it's very, it's a sick way of sort of thinking for mm -hmm. the way this personality pattern works. Um, but that's also, I think, in a, a form of interjection that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how you went on to even expand on it to say that it's almost as if you think, uh, if I take on this suffering, I will somehow reduce it, reduce the pain of watching it, and mm -hmm. I can handle it. And I know maybe you probably can't. Yeah. And that, that the I've heard the word masochism as sort of yes. a feature of the self-preserving four. And you make that really clear. Yes. You know, as a six. So it, interjection is the defense mechanism that we've been taught is true most often for fours. And projection for sixes is my jam. And mm. I had no real consciousness of how often I did that. And especially yeah. with my husband. So he is a self-preserving nine. So um, he, I will look at his face and I will say to him, what's wrong? What are you worrying about? You look anxious. And he'll go, you know, I'm a self-preserving nine. I'm just kind of thinking about whether the Celtics are going to win tonight. You know, just like, you know, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty like just having a ritual to my day. And, yeah. and he will then eventually, if I keep at this long enough and he gets annoyed enough with it, he will say, how about you let me tell you if I'm feeling anxious and you just assume everything's okay. And then when he put it back, then I, I was like, because of my Enneagram studies, I was like, I think this is what projection must feel like to the poor people around me mm -hmm. that I am not owning, taking responsibility for declaring my own feelings. I'm shuffling them off to Buffalo Mm -hmm. um, rather than just taking responsibility and using my voice and saying, yeah, you know what? I think actually the anxiety in this room is emanating <laughs> from me. Maybe I should consider that. So um, I, I think there's so many things we can learn in the Enneagram. There's just mm -hmm. so much to learn that can help us raise self-awareness. 
Yeah. Um, Leslie, what do you think about um, your use of the Enneagram for personal growth? I can I cannot imagine any four looking at the Enneagram and thinking it's just simply there for good cocktail party conversation. <laughs> um, but how do you, like, how does that practically work for you in your life in terms of using it? Yeah. You know, I, in my like professional life, I work with two different, I work with two personality type systems and they've both been helpful, but the Enneagram has been so incredibly powerful in my personal life. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because it gives me a framework for viewing myself and all of my patterns. And, you know, I'm, I I want to be a self-aware person and it can be difficult when I realize I'm not as self-aware as I think or might think. Um, so the Enneagram gives me a tool to be able to increase my self-awareness. And like we were talking about earlier, get out of that box that I'm in because of my personality type. So, you know, the Enneagram is just, I, I can't even really explain how impactful it has been in my life. It's given me so much um, more self-acceptance. It's given me more power and ability and confidence to create the kind of life that I want to create and live. Um, it's given me an understanding of why I am the way that I am and what I can do to try to make that better or to be more whole, as we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's helped me also to understand other people too and why they're showing up in their own patterns and how that might interact with my own patterns. And just to give me a way to, like I said earlier, looking at it from a a bigger perspective instead of being in it and being triggered by those Mm -hmm. things. So yeah, the Enneagram has just meant so much to me and I think it's a lifelong journey. I don't think I'll ever be done with it. Yeah. That's, that's how I feel too. Has it triggered any dark nights of the soul for you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, I would say it is really difficult as someone who believes they're self-aware and who believes they know themselves uh, or themselves to find out that there's a whole lot of things that I was not aware of mm. or not understanding or didn't know about myself. Um, I don't know if they've triggered necessarily a dark night of the soul, but you know, I'm pretty comfortable with sadness and pain and all of those things. So those realizations push me there pretty quickly or have in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also, uh, you know, there are different stages of frustration that we can experience when we see the passion in our life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I let myself, it could become debilitating and it could be just something that was so maybe shameful or, you know, just so painful that I didn't do anything with it. Mm. Um, Those things I think can, yeah, for sure, just create this sense of like, what even matters? You know, what is even real? Like, why am I even here? You know, all these kinds of questions that are not super healthy. Um, But I think on the other side of that, there has been a sense of like, okay, like, well, what can I do about this? You know, I am driven to find solutions. So, yeah, I don't know if I would claim a dark night of the soul, but I've definitely had some really 
like uh, jarring moments with the Enneagram. <laughs> so this question for you as a four might be the harder question. What has been the most refreshing and best part of doing <laughs> this growth work? We use the Enneagram. Oh, we have to talk about the positives. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna close out this section with the positive. Yeah. Yeah. The Enneagram refreshing. Oh, that's really it's really hard. That's a little bit triggering. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> like, is it refreshing? I don't know if it's refreshing. It's I'm when like, you what when does we refreshing feel like <laughs> when we stop this. Just go look at this is us, and it'll take you right back. <laughs> I'm going to go with like what have been just the positive or good things about okay. it. Cause I'm still stuck on that refreshing what that, what that feels like. Um, but I think it has, especially with the support of coaches, it has really helped me to have a greater sense of self-acceptance and a continual understanding of a need to improve my relationship with myself. Because mm. if that doesn't change the relationships I want with other people, the connections I want with other people, it's not going to be at the level that I want it to be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a lovely. constant reminder and mirror to, to continue to develop that relationship with myself first, which is really, really, really hard. Right. But I guess refreshing from the aspect of like thinking futuristically, like if I can get to that point that we talked about earlier, the beauty and the light and like, opening the beautiful case and um that is refreshing and motivation to know that there's that other side that's available to me that I can continue to work towards that I can get aspects of that life of that in my life on a regular basis if I continue down this path so that feels hopeful I guess Mm -hmm. is a better word for me than refreshing Mm -hmm. Um, and that does drive me yeah so how do you use the Enneagram professionally so I am a coach, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and I do um, help people figure out their types in two different systems, the Enneagram being one. Uh, and I help people when they figure out their type to create the kind of life that they want, which is often around a purposeful life, a meaningful life, a life that feels fulfilling, um, that matters, and use their type patterns, identity, or I, to identify their type patterns to not be held back from that life. Mm -hmm. Um, As a person who also knows the Enneagram and works with it, I use it as an opportunity as a mirror to reflect back to me how I'm showing up in my coaching sessions, Mm -hmm. what's triggering me, you know, what's driving me. Is it envy if I'm going after these different courses and things like that? Like, what is it that's actually driving my my motivation to do the things I'm doing, my business. So it's, yeah, it's definitely really helpful in my professional life too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I know that you probably have clients who do not have uh, an overwhelming, burning, driving interest in the Enneagram. Do you still find it helpful? Yeah, so the way that my business is set up is around personality type. So everyone that comes to me already has an interest in one of the two systems that I work mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do find, though, is if someone chooses the Enneagram, once they get into it and start seeing some of those patterns, you know, there's a few different options. There's a few different responses people can have. And one can be, I don't like this and I don't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> if that happens, then we can continue our relationship, of course. But 
Um, I will not bring those overt connections to the Enneagram uh, mm -hmm. if they don't want it. But on my side, I will be listening for it and thinking about it and trying to tailor what I'm doing to their type in the way that, um, you know, I know it's probably going to be received well or right. help them. Right. But if they're not interested in the connections and all that, then I don't I don't bring it up because it's not it's like kind of like poking a wound, you know, if they're they've right. noticed it and they're like, oh, I don't think so. I don't want that. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, my son, who is a self-preserving five, a pastor, a therapist and um, all around thoughtful guy, um, has often said to me about the Enneagram that he whether or not somebody fully engages in, you know, jumps all in like I have, like I just love it so much. He said, it seems to him that even people like us who are interested in it, even if we never mention the Enneagram or any of the words that we bring to the table of relationship, a certain kind of listening ear that he mm. thinks is helpful. Mm. I love, yeah. I kind of love that image. Yeah, I think that is absolutely true. I think it's true of anyone who's used some sort of system or guidance for self growth. Like mm -hmm. there's a different presence that you can bring to relationships mm -hmm. of yourself mm -hmm. and of other people, mm -hmm. which is so helpful when we're all walking around with lenses and perspectives that we've adopted or we're carrying and it can be difficult for us to see something other than through those lenses that we're just so hardwired to use. So I think anyone who does self-growth work, especially through the Enneagram, yeah, I think that's true. We bring a different, a different perspective and ability to sort of manage or see all those different things that are at play mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to manage ourselves and to show up for the other person in the way that would be best for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think we necessarily have to become Enneagram evangelists, but mm -hmm. I think for me, just this idea of knowing that I see through a particular lens that is very limiting, mm -hmm. and um, that I have, a, it has, you know what it has done really? It has totally increased my curiosity. Just mm -hmm. has made me very curious, because I'm now constantly aware that I'm missing stuff that matters and that there are other people who quite naturally see things that I'm missing. So it's almost like I understand I have a form of macular degeneration <laughs> with different blind spots, but I have friends and colleagues and strangers who I run into who see so clearly where I do not and that that can only be a good thing if I, if I can accept that and invest myself in learning from other people absolutely so yeah. that's a oh go ahead no you go i'll just say that's a really good lesson for me too of as a self-press for of like looking to others for support and looking to other people too for the things that they can help me with because that's something that's not super natural for me mm -hmm. um but yeah i think that's a beautiful representation of of what the enneagram can bring for us you said earlier that you always thought going forward you would always be doing the work of the Enneagram. You weren't going to, you weren't going to, there's, there's no station at the end of the train track where you arrive and all of a sudden you're the expert, which I so agree with. 
And I think that's part of what makes it so lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, because I can't be the expert on anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I, in a world where there are experts that are always telling us how we should be changing and doing and thinking and feeling, I love having a tool that I utilize daily personally um, that keeps reminding me that um, that's really not the point of life. Yeah. And so I love that. Well, Leslie, yeah. you have just been, it's been so lovely to have this conversation with you. I've appreciated learning from you so much. I'm just wondering in closing, if there's anything you'd like to say to all six people that will listen to this about, um, <laughs> about I'm sure there's more than that. <laughs> about fours. Like, is there anything, a compelling message that you would like to tell the rest of us that we should know about you and your type to help us um, love you better? Wow. Okay. So you've just tasked me with speaking for all fours. I think you're up <laughs> to it, girl. One thing about all fours. <laughs> My initial instinct is like, I'm not going to do that. I speak for everyone. <laughs> um, gosh, to understand fours better, I think that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of perspectives to look at here, but I think if someone knows about the Enneagram and has a potential four in their life, you know, just being able to see that motivation of some of those patterns and even the push-pull mm-hmm. and trying to sit with them and allow them to be where they are and let them know that you are there for them and maybe not falling for their tricks, you know, (laughs) of the, of, uh, of the push pull things that we've talked about, but just um, honoring them, being there for them, um, sharing with them that you love them, that they don't have to do anything special or unique to be loved um, that they are loved just as they are, um, that it's not their creativity or their depth or the things that, um, that they're only things that matter about them, that they matter as a whole, mm. uh, that they are beautiful as is, mm. uh, that they don't, yeah, they don't have to show up in any way other than just who they are and how they are mm. in the, in the day. Mm. And yeah, that's, even as I speak this, it feels so like, minimal. It does not feel like enough to say uh, that this is what people need to know about fours, but that's what's coming to mind. Mm. Well, it's certainly one thing for us to hold on to, and that's better than trying to make all the things. And that seems like a pretty Mm. important thing. This is a total side note, which I probably shouldn't even bring up at the end of the podcast. But what I will say is, because I can't um, stop myself, is I'm surprised and I have found this listening, like, I am so clear that you are a self-preserving four and you've done such a good job. I feel like I know self-preserving four better because of you. Mm-hmm. And I just love that so much. And thank you for that. And I would have, without learning from you, I think I would have failed to also distinguish the difference between some of the things that are important to you and then some of the behaviors that drive ones. Mm. So that one four arrow, mm-hmm. uh, I heard 
and I find that fascinating and, and really helpful. Yeah. And um, and I just thank you for that. I really yeah. appreciate this time. Well, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If we if we had somebody that had to represent all the self-preserving for, <laughs> I would nominate you. <laughs> I don't know if I would accept the nomination, you but I guess I have by being on this podcast. You, you wouldn't. And I've got some other self-preserving fours in mind, good, too. Good. So you, uh, we could good. put you up as a whole panel, and then we would have the whole thing. We'd have the whole okay. thing. Well, you'd have four of us out of all of us. <laughs> <laughs> all right, oh Leslie. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And let me know what you think of This Is Us. I will. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to the podcast, More Than Your Number, about the Enneagram and personal growth with Teresa McBean. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might want to check out more of what Teresa has to offer. Go to her website, TeresaMcBean.com, and be sure to sign up for the newsletter to get all the latest offerings and sometimes even a discount.